This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, Today we are in our financial series of financial principles for surgeons, and we are lucky enough to have Dr. Jason Mizell joining us again. He's a colorectal surgeon and professor of surgery and the director of business of medicine and program director of the transitional year program at the University of Arkansas. And as we said before, he won the White Coat Investors 2020 Financial Educator of the Year Award. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, Dr. Mizell. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to, to dive a little deeper into some of these concepts and maybe explain things a little bit more uh, in depth and on any any issues that we had before that maybe weren't a little clear so we can, can knock this out. Absolutely. And so uh, just as a primer for our listeners, this episode is a little more geared towards your getting your attending salary. So I don't want you to feel overwhelmed uh, really in residency, you should focus on kind of maxing that Roth IRA out and minimizing debt. I think if you're doing that, you're, you're going to do pretty well. But this is for when the, the paychecks get a little uh, more complicated. Um, so so speaking of that, uh, as a junior attending, what are the accounts you should be maxing out first? Assuming we have a debt payment plan in the works for our student loans, which we cover in a separate episode, what are the basics of the backdoor Roth IRA? Um, and, and then how do you decide kind of you know, there's just all kinds of things to put money towards, um, especially you get your first couple paychecks and, and how do you decide where to kind of allocate things? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's one that um, has, there's a lot of opinions out there, but I would say generally one thing that's a little confusing just to define these two terms. So a lot of people talk about IRAs and, and so an IRA is for someone really who it's an individual retirement account for someone who does not have a uh, employer. So most people that we listen to this podcast, I would say, are not totally self-employed. They're going to be part of a group or you know, a hospital employee or something. And so whenever they are an employee, then you're going to get into the terms that sound a little more confusing. And we, we touched on this briefly last time, but uh, like a, that's where you'll get to a 401k or a 403b or a 457. Those are the common numbers that are given just to the different retirement plans. And, and all those re- plans, what you think of is that they're really just large buckets. They're just big um, containers that hold your money. And so here in Little Rock, if you are employed by the Baptist hospital system, then you would have a 401k. If you're employed by UAMS, they would be a 403b, but it's still a account that has, uh, last time I checked, about $20,500 is how much you can put in that account each year. And I would recommend absolutely first step is you want to fill up that bucket because it is a way for the government to say, we will allow you to take $20,500 every year, put it in an account and avoid taxes on it so that you can actually reduce how much uh, your, uh, how much you owe to the IRS. So that's, that's a great, great thing. It's probably one of the most key pieces of financial knowledge that we uh, have available to us 
um, so that we can meet our financial goals. So a huge failure would be not taking advantage of that. But like for me at UAMS, I have a 403B because I'm a state employee, but also it's a, or I'm a not-for-profit, but then I'm also a governmental agency. So I also have a 457. So like in me, for my case, I can do 20,500 in my 403B and I can do 20,500 in my 457. So now I'm able to put out a lot more money in my retirement so that I'm able to get to my, my goals faster. And so that's actually one of the benefits sometimes of being in academics is you have retirement plans available to you uh, that maybe aren't available in other uh, settings. So let's say you are in the, the type of employee setting where you only have a 401k. So you've got, you're making so much money, you fill up that bucket pretty quick. And the question is, Kevin mentions, like, what do I want to do now? Well, that's where things like backdoor Roth IRAs come in. Uh, what I would say for most junior attendings, what they really need to do is, is kill their debt uh, because most of them are still carrying debt. And if you're not planning on doing the public service loan forgiveness, then just put whatever money towards killing your student loans. But if you are going to do public service loan forgiveness, awesome. Then start killing your debt. And once that's done, then you would start looking at other ways to, to stash away money, whether that would be backdoor Roths or diversification to real estate or setting up uh, retirement or sorry, um, college plans for your kids and doing uh, some of the state uh, 529 plans, uh, different things that are available there. But the backdoor Roth, I would say, gets a lot of press. Um, we hear that a lot in doctor circles. Um, there's a, a couple of good articles on the um, Physician on Fire uh, blog. He's one of the white coat investor guys, but he does like a point counterpoint to backdoor Roths and talks about that they're probably not as high yield as the press gives them or we do in like doctor circles and doctor financial circles. They're great and they can be useful. But if you have other things that are less tricky uh, with your money, then you can um, can do other you know, other investments uh, fairly easily. But and I can send you guys the links to that those physician on fire websites just for their um, you know for the audience to be able to kind of look those over. But, but lots of different options there. Which um, what you know as physicians we also really like algorithms, and so I'll also send you guys um, a, a link to this um, attending waterfall, which basically is like this. Uh, row of buckets that show what you should do first, second, third, fourth, like in order. And that, that really was kind of devised by a, a group here in town, uh, Aptus Financial, that came up with that concept. It's on the White Coat Investor page too, but I can send you guys that. That really shows do this first, do this second. When this bucket fills up, let it spill over into the third and all, so, forth, uh, or so forth and so on. So I can send that to you guys. Awesome. So let's dive a little bit into some of the the assets that we put into these different buckets, the different types of assets. So I, I remember when I first, you know, was, uh, got out of residency and was, you know, looking to, I, I know I should be investing. Which I, where should I put my money? What should I put it into? There's, it, it can be very confusing. There's mutual funds, index funds, uh, actively managed funds, passively managed funds, um, and then, you know, individual stocks. So um, where, where do we start? What do you recommend? Yeah, that's that's really great. And so as we talked about in the last episode, really the first thing to do is to get the money out of your check and put it in the bucket. But the money doesn't just sit in the bucket as cash. You have to buy something with the cash because to get to where you want to be in your savings, which most people would say most doctors need around four to five million dollars in their retirement account to be comfortable in retirement. That's a huge number. At least it is to me. 
Um, and so to get to that point, you have to take risk. And the risk generally is the stock market. So you've got to buy stocks mostly with the money that you're putting in that retirement account. And so this is where all the research that I kind of alluded to in the last episode really has been you know, off the charts is trying to figure out what is the best model. Most people would say that passive investing is the best model. And that's the whole Vanguard, um, Jack Bogle concept. And there's um, you know, lots of papers that support what you really should do rather than trying to get one particular class of stocks like technology or um, electronics or uh, commodities or um, you know, big companies or small companies. Rather than trying to figure out which is going to be the next best thing, real estate investment trust or whatever, the key really is to own every one of them. And that way you don't have to pick which stock is going to be best. Because when you really look at the stock market each year, most of the growth happens from about 6 to 7% of the stocks in the stock market. The rest of the 90-ish percent don't do so well. Well, how do you in the world do you know what those are? We don't. And so the answer is to own every single one of them. And that's called passive investing. It means you don't really try to pick them. You don't buy some and sell some. You just own every one of them. And there are what we call mutual funds, which are just a big old bucket of all these stocks, like publicly traded on the stock market. And you say, I want to buy this mutual fund, which is made up of every stock in the U.S. stock market. So that way you're just done. You just buy the one. But your whole portfolio, your whole retirement account wouldn't just want to be all stocks, particularly not all just U.S. stocks. So you want U.S. stocks, you want every international stock, and you want every bond that's out there as well. That's what they call it a three, uh, like a three fund portfolio where you're just keeping it simple. You just do all those things. Every stock in the U.S. stock market, every stock in the the um, international and then the bond. And so then it's like, okay, what percentage do you do of those three? Well, most people, there's the, the bond issue is one that can vary. Um, most people would say you can do your age, particularly for doctors, maybe subtract off 10. So for me, uh, I might want to be in 30% bonds, 35% bonds. Some would even be more aggressive than that and say, subtract off your age minus 20 and make that your bonds, uh, 20% bonds. Bonds are real conservative. They're not going to give you a lot of return, but they're nice when the stock market goes down. And then about a third be international and the rest be U.S. stocks. That's a long answer to a short question, but suffice it to say, you don't have to go buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. Own it no. all. Own it by those three funds. And then just divide out the percentages of those three funds uh, to what's comfortable for you. Yeah, that's 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 perfect. So, um, you know, I, I'll put in a little plug for um, you mentioned Jack Bogle. Uh, there's there's a lot of great resources. The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins is something I would recommend people read. He's got an excellent blog series um, that covers a lot of this stuff. Uh, maybe we'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes as well. It's a good, uh, easy read place for people to start on these. Uh, on these, and would encourage everybody to go look at their um, the fees associated with the funds that they they own because those fees will kill you over the long term. So yeah, yeah exactly. VT VT Sachs and chill. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So the the VT SAX is one of the um, that's the ticker symbol for the fund that is all of the U.S. stock market, and so it's very very safe. It's it's passive investing, very, very low fees, because you're paying somebody to buy these stocks for you. And those people, since they're not constantly doing stuff, the fees are very low. And that's where you don't want to waste money paying somebody else to do stuff with your money that they really don't do stuff very often. 
And so one, one of the easiest things to do, I didn't mean to interrupt, one of the easiest things to do is actually what Vanguard has is they have these retirement funds. So they say, all right, uh, pick a year you want to retire. Let's say for me, you know, 2045 or something. So I just would go find the fund, Vanguard target retirement date 2045, and say, I want all of my 25% of my retirement money every month going into this one fund. And that one fund is made up of those things I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. It's all the U.S. stock markets, all the international and the bonds. And what happens is over time, as I get closer and closer to retiring, Vanguard for me will make my what currently is kind of a risky, uh, more um, higher stock proportion portfolio and over time make it more conservative because I don't want to be in a very risky um, asset class when I'm just about to retire. If the market crashes, then I lose a bunch of money. So they will do that for you. And so some of you may say, wow, this episode for me has already been enough to know I don't want to mess with this. That's a good way to be hands off and just to buy, put everything in that one fund and they'll just take care of it for you for a very low fee. I have two questions to follow up on that. Um, one question is, is, you know, I only have access to the TSP being in the military. So, you know, they kind of, you choose like one of four different things basically to put your money in and kind of similar to things we're talking about. But when you have a 403B or 401K, how much uh, choice do you have in the matter? Um, like at UAMS, are you allowed to buy VTSAX with your 403B or is it what they have, they offer you? Yeah, that's a great question. And that over the last several years, we are seeing where big academic institutions are doing a better job of moving towards the vanguards and those kind of companies that are providing good funds for you to put your money in. But for a long time, that was always the, the pro, the good thing about an IRA is that you weren't limited to what your company would offer. With an IRA, you buy whatever you want. But if you are an employee, a 401k gives you a lot more money you can put in retirement because an IRA may be like 6000 as opposed to a 401k is you know, 20500 But you're limited to buying only what the company will let you buy. But like for UMS, we, ours is you know, serviced through Fidelity, which Fidelity has a lot of great funds, Vanguard and such and such. So I have a lot of great stuff I can buy. But if you do look at your company and say, wow, the stuff they're giving us is not good. It's a lot of active investing, a lot of very high fees, then, you know, invest in that to be able to capture whatever match potentially they're going to give you. And then look at things like backdoor Roths IRAs. You can set up IRAs for your spouse, um, you know, stuff for your kids. HSAs are also good, which we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, so there's other ways to put your money if, if it just so happens to be your employer doesn't give you good options. And then just to kind of close this out, fees, you guys talk about fees. You know, I don't, you know, what is, what is a good fee? What is a bad fee? 1% doesn't sound that bad to me, but um, I think it, think that is. So can you break that yeah. down? Yeah, that's right. So, so fees can be assessed multiple times by the middleman from the time it leaves your hand to the time it gets into your retirement account. One is the initial commission when you just buy the stock. Like if you were to go and open an account today with Edward Jones or whoever, and then go buy some Apple stock, they're probably going to charge you $50 just to buy however much you want of Apple stock. And so there's little fees like that that are commissions. But also, as I mentioned uh, a minute ago with the you know, target date fund, you're paying somebody to manage this for you. Uh, for companies like Vanguard, fees will be 
0.015, And those are great fees. Those are very, very low. Um, but like a 1% fee for particularly for, you know, a, a private company or, a, um, you know, a Schwab or somebody like that, that um, Washington Mutual or um, you know, different ones that would be, um, you know, kind of buying for your money. Um, they may charge one, one and a half, two percent sometimes, which again doesn't sound much, but they're oftentimes, uh, if you're going with a financial planner, you're giving them money every month, but they are not a lot of times doing much with it. They're then, you know, buying mutual funds and the mutual funds people are taking money. So in a situation like that, you're paying, you know, one percent for them to hold your money. And then the funds that they're buying are also taking some of your money. So you're getting chopped multiple times along the path. So I would advocate for eliminating that financial advisor in the middle so that they don't have to mess with your money. You know what you want to do. You want to just buy everything, as we talked about a few minutes ago. And then the fees are very small whenever you're not doing the active trading. So a good fee, as I mentioned, 0.02, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. Back in residency, we had uh, a nice steak dinner provided by a financial advisor and a, a bunch of my uh, co-residents signed up and kind of regretted it later. But what if you really don't want to deal with this? You're like, hey, I am a surgeon. I make $300,000 a year and I just want to just focus on work. Um, is it reasonable in that situation to hire a financial advisor? If so, what fee structure should you look for and, and how do you find a good one? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and after my last few statements there, you may think that I have a very negative opinion of financial advisors, but really it kind of depends on what type of financial advisor that you want. And so what I would recommend is uh, finding a financial advisor that charges uh, by the hour, just like a plumber or something like that. And so for me, when I started here in Little Rock, I'm not from here, but I found somebody that does a per hour um, you know, fee. So I went to them and I said, look, this is how much I'm making. This is where I want to be down the road. And can you figure out the best way for me to position everything so that I get to that goal? They said, sure, give us a couple of weeks, come back. So I paid them for a few hours of work. And when I came back a couple of weeks later, they had a large spreadsheet and extrapolated my money and said, if you do this for 20 years or 30 years, this is where you'll be. So I adjusted a few things, put my money in all these passive funds that we mentioned earlier, and I haven't hardly touched it since. And I haven't gone back to another financial advisor because it's just now automated. And I know that as long as the stock market continues to go up over the course of the you know history as it has, and I continue to give the same amount to my retirement, I'm going to meet my goals. So I paid, I don't know, maybe a thousand bucks, um, you know, 12 years ago and haven't paid any extra money to an advisor other than what they charge little tiny fees, you know, for my, my funds. But that being said, if you are someone who's very impulsive, you know, and needs someone to help kind of rein them in, uh, or if you need, if you have a real complex financial situation, small businesses, uh, you know, finances, you want to have estate planning attorneys to be involved in the process. Sometimes it's just nice to have those people in place uh, because doctors, we like to do a lot of things sometimes with our money. And, and it's nice to have at least someone you can bounce ideas off of or kind of rein us in whenever we're thinking about going super speculative on that you know, next hot, you know, Medtronic stock or whatever, you know, um, somebody to kind of help slap our hand when we're thinking about getting crazy. Um, so they're great in certain instances, but I do not think we need to be giving them money every month and them taking a, a percent fee under what they call AUM assets under management. I think that's unnecessary. 
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Now let's talk about the the, the converse to that. Let's say you, you are really interested in this stuff. Um, and you're doing it. We're doing everything we, we're doing right, right? We got our you know, our retirement accounts, we're maxing that out. We paid off our debt. We're doing our low cost index funds. Um, but where's the fun? So let's, we're like individual, that Tesla stock or that those cryptocurrencies. Um, what do you recommend for those people? How do you, how do you rein yourself in? What percentage do you do any of that stuff? And if so, what percentage of your portfolio do you keep that limited to? Yeah, I, um, would say no more than, than 10% of your, your portfolio should be in that sort of speculative individual stock or, you know, funds that are very like tech heavy um, or whatever, um, you know, the meme stocks or whatever it is you want to jump into. Um, because, I mean, you want to have your consistent backbone that's churning for you. And if you strike it rich and get a bunch of money, great. Um, you'll regret that you didn't have 20% you're playing with. But at the same time, if you lose, you're not derailing your, your financial plan because, I mean, for physicians, generally, the retirement game is one. We just need to be consistent and be patient, and we're going to be fine. So there's not a whole lot of benefit to it other than it is fun. And I did, yes, um, previously, um, do a fair amount of individual trading. I opened up a TD Ameritrade account and watched the market every day, multiple times per day, and talked to my buddies about buying stocks. And it was very informative for me, but I got very frustrated because I, you know, stupid things would happen in the market. Also, I would lose money when a stock, for all intents and purposes, was going to be amazing, you know. And so after that happened a few times, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to do something that's a little less risky. And so for me, rather than doing that, I, I kind of spun off and now I, I do a fair amount of real estate. And um, that's a way for me to diversify. And it it's very challenging, like mentally to understand that. Not very challenging, but it can be challenging. But it's fun for me as a hobby. Um, so I think you have to know, as I mentioned in the last episode, you know, Bears make money and bulls make money, but pigs get slaughtered. It's just easy to become greedy in, in the white collar gambling of the stock market. But but it's fine as long as you can keep yourself reined in at a, a fairly small amount of your portfolio. So this kind of leads two parts uh, here. We have a, one of our last episodes of this series is about kind of how to get into real estate investing. Mm. And we're about to ask you about, you know, how to know when you're ready to buy a house. But can you just, I know Jason's very interested in real estate investing. Can you just fill us in a little bit about sort of what your your way, do you REITs or do you in syndications or are you actually do an active real estate? Yeah. So there, just to clarify that there's a very wide spectrum of when people talk about buying real estate, what that really means. Uh, the simplest thing is actually just to buy um, stocks uh, in companies that deal with real estate. Those are the REITs um, that, that Kevin mentioned. But there's the on the other spectrum is actually owning the property yourself. And that's a lot of more control and, and you're you know, much more down in the weeds. It just depends on how much time you have, how much you want to be involved. Uh, my business partner also likes flipping houses. So he buys houses and in the afternoon after he finishes delivering babies, he'll go over there and, you know, shoot up, um, you know, different drywall and he'll, you know, put up trim and paint and all this sort of stuff. And they're busting out walls and all kind of cool stuff. And they love that. And then they can make a fair amount of money on, on house flipping. But for me, I, I'm not a good visionary in that way, but I do own um, two single family houses. 
that I actually rent to medical students. And then I own two apartment complexes. We sold one. I had three and we sold one not too long ago. Uh, one of them I rent to travel nurses uh, here in Little Rock because there's like four hospitals here. So they're fully furnished and they come in for short term leases and then they uh, they go on in three months. Uh, and one is in a town about 45 minutes south of here that is um, two bedroom, two bath, small town, uh, very, you know, just normal apartment leasing. And and so I, I do keep real close tabs on those. I pass them quite often. And um, my med students email me and say, hey, chimney's leaking. What can you know, help me out here? And so I'll, re- I'll reach out to my property manager and say, hey, um, you know, the student calls that the chimney's leaking. Please address it ASAP because I want them to study. I don't want them to worry about roof leaks. Uh, so that's been that's been my investment experience. Um, I did do some of the syndication uh, for a little while, which is where online there's these different companies and investors pool their money. They give it to a company, and the company goes and does the rehab on whatever it is they've you know seen to be uh, something in need, and they give you ideally your money back at the end with some interest. So there's a lot of lot of variation in there depending on how involved you want to be. But I think as physicians and high income earners, I think being involved in something outside of just medicine uh, is helpful for a diversification standpoint, but also a a passive income uh, standpoint, which is really what real estate is supposed to be is after it's all paid off, it's just money in your pocket every month uh, without you having to continue to work for that money. Uh, So that leads uh, nicely, Uh, you know, during the last episode, we talked a little bit about the pitfall of, you know, buying the doctor house, but, um, you know, that is a big decision for uh, graduating residents and junior staff is whether or not to buy a house and when are they ready? When are you ready to buy a house? I know you mentioned in the first couple of years, most people move. And so we've kind of covered that, but, but how do you know when you are ready, um, how do you approach this uh, and how much do you need to have down? What are your some options as far as financing different mortgages? I know there's a lot of like, you know, jumbo loans, physician mortgages. How do you sort out that mess? Yeah, that, that can very much be a mess. And, and, you know, part of the course that I teach here at UMS for medical students, we have a full hour just devoted It's a 20 hour course, but one full hour of it is um, on renting versus buying a house. And, that actually has changed a little bit um, over. We've, I've been doing the course now for eight years, and that has changed a little bit. As interest rates have changed, you know, for several years their interest rates were very, very low, and it was very uh, the, the pendulum really swung towards house buying. But now interest rates are shooting up at a pretty quick pace, and so really renting now is becoming more uh, attractive. And there's there's pros and cons to each uh, that we don't necessarily have to to go down into down in the weeds, but. There are a lot of early career physicians now because of the uncertainty of the market and uncertainty of their job. They are renting early on. So it's it's not becoming as much socially unacceptable, you know, for a, a doctor to still be renting early in their career. Uh, some some are until they know that they really like the job, they like the people they work with. And so then they decide to buy. And as I mentioned on the last one, just a good rule of thumb is you don't you don't want your house to be more than double your salary. And so if you are feeling comfortable with the area and you're comfortable with your job and you're comfortable with your school for your kids and your, your wife is comfortable, uh, then you can look at buying once really you've saved up enough to have a down payment. Uh, there are those doctor loans which can allow you to put no money down and they can also avoid you having to pay uh, PMI, which is um, uh, rental in, or, sorry, mortgage insurance. And so those are good, but whenever you're fully leveraged, meaning you owe or you actually own none of the house and every part of the house you're living in is owned by the bank. That's just an, 
uh, unsettling place to be. And so I would really recommend a down payment of about 20% on a house so that you've will lower your interest or lower your uh, your amount per month you're having to pay for your house lower your mortgage you actually have some equity in the house um, and you are in a place where you're just more financially secure so you're not house poor as we talked about um, in the last episode but what I think really the the doctor's loans are and have become it's when physicians early in their career are too antsy to wait and build up money it allows them to to quickly buy what they want rather than in them being in a good financial position uh, before buying. So I think it's a little risky. Okay. Uh, let's say I make the smart decision. I know it's, it's very hard to do. I can speak from experience of moving to new places and, and wanting to own. Um, but say I, you know, especially right now decide to rent. Um, how should I, where should I save that money uh, for my down payment? Yeah, good question. Um, so the piece about the house, you know, as earlier as I mentioned is, you know, it takes a while to, to recoup your, your down payment or sorry, your, uh, your closing costs it takes a while just to get over some of the maintenance. Cause most people would say, you know, with the house, uh, you could, there's different ways you can do it. You could say, uh, for every square foot you have in the house, let's say it's 2000 square foot. Well, uh, per year you would expect to have, um, about $2,000 in maintenance costs for the house. It's about a dollar per square foot. Or you, you could say uh, 1% of the purchase price per year, just in maintenance. So a lot of those costs get eaten up, you know, electricity bills, maintenance, um, you know, insurance. And so when you're renting, a lot of that you don't have to pay for. Uh, so you can accumulate sometimes money pretty quickly. And because you're probably going to be wanting to do something with it relatively soon, you know, a year, two years, something like that, Really, probably one of the easiest things to do is just put it in a savings account, which probably doesn't have a very high interest rate. But it's the the liquidity, the ability to get to that money easy uh, is why you are not able to get much of a return. You know, if you were to put it in your retirement account, you've just locked it into, you know, 59 and a half before you can take that money back out. <laughs> or, if, or if you put it in a bond or something, you're looking at five or 10 years. So it's not a great place, but at least it is, you know, kind of over to the side. And it provides another barrier for you to say, oh, you know, for me to take this money out of my savings and spend it on, you know, the new Lexus or whatever, you have to be really conscientious and like really defy your, the other, you know, the angel that's sitting on your shoulder and say, I'm going to go reach into that savings account. So rather than being in your checking account, if you put it uh, just another, another bridge to have to cross, and sometimes you can, it'll help you talk yourself out of dipping into that too early. Uh, but that's probably the best thing to do is just, um, you know, some of the, the uh, online brokerages um, have some pretty good savings rates, half percent, one percent, sometimes two, depending on the company. That's probably the best thing. All right. So just to wrap all this up, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot, but um, I think it might be beneficial. What is um, if you what's one lesson you learned the hard way um, or one financial mistake that you've made or what was your biggest financial mistake if you're comfortable sharing that uh, you think our listeners could learn from? Yeah. So as I mentioned, when I graduated um, fellowship, I did not know any of this. So I talked to an advisor, um, in addition to the, the financial advisor, um, that I was talking to earlier, I was like, well, let me just kind of get a different perspective. And, um, initially because of my, the, uh, fee per hour advisor I talked to, we didn't talk much about insurance. So I did buy a whole life policy and, uh, by somebody I trusted. And then I also did some individual stop buying initially with that same company. So I was, like I said, I was paying you know, $50 a transaction. 
And I started really looking at all the costs and realizing, wow, not only uh, is this, um, am I losing a lot of money here, uh, but every time I buy and sell a stock, it's 50 bucks and that's huge. And so um, that's when I really started reading a lot more. I got just a, a financial dictionary and just started learning terms and then slowly hurt the other person's feelings, but sold all my stuff with that person. And they were like a family friend. Um, and so it's a weird uh, type of relationship that you get into whenever you trust that person. But the financial industry really, I'm, I wouldn't say brainwashes, that sounds terrible, but they really do believe that what they're doing is the right thing for their client. Um, but truthfully, we, we know that it's really not. And so I think for me, I, I learned that even though I had spent you know the better part of my entire life learning, there was still a huge part that I didn't. And so that really drove me to this self-education piece. Uh, so that's why I kind of jump on the whole life and the individual stock picking now because um, I, I still have learned that it kind of haunts me. But it, I didn't do it for very long, so I didn't lose that much money. But it was enough to where it still irritated me, you know. But I'm still <laughs> driving my 2007 Toyota Tundra, 150,000 miles. And, um, you know, so we, we still have our old vehicles. Um, I've been done well in houses and things like that. So we, we've recouped money in other areas, but that still burns my, my biscuits when I think about how much I pay. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Jason Mizell, how can we uh, find you if we want to reach out to you? Are you on Twitter or you have an email or what's the best way to get a hold of you to ask you some more questions here? Yeah. So um, the best way to, to get in touch with me would just be through simply email. It's just J S S is in Sam J S Mizell M I Z E L L at uams.edu. Um, I used to be real active uh, on Twitter and Facebook and all that. And so as I've kind of gone along and as we talked about in the last episode about, you know, wealth and, you know, what do you want to spend your, your time on? Um, I've just gotten a lot less active on social media and I've uh, gotten a lot less active in drama and chaos and just spend a lot of time with my family. So I don't do much uh, as much online. I just like hanging with my family and doing my job and taking care of my colorectal patients. Uh, so email is the best thing. And I'm happy to answer any questions, and then I'll send you guys some of that stuff we talked about earlier uh, for the listeners, too, where they can, um, can go on your, your site and see those articles. Well, awesome. I think this is a great primer uh, for our trainees and junior attendings to get started off right, and uh, definitely we'll provide them with some resources to further their knowledge. So thank you again, Dr. Mizell. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invite. and look forward to hearing from you guys again and seeing the rest of your financial talks. I'm super excited y'all are doing that. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.